The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We're going to finish out chapter 2 today. We're still in a series going through the book of Hebrews called Never Better, the idea being that uh, if you are somebody that has come to faith in Christ, if you have understood, tasted, and seen the goodness of God's grace, if you've been saved by grace through faith, kind of regardless of what else might be going on around you, uh, you, you can say with, with conviction that you've never been better. And on the other side of that, for, for those that have not yet come to faith in Christ, There's this idea, and we see this fleshed out in the book of Hebrews as it focuses upon the superiority of Christ to all other things we may be tempted to worship or give our allegiance to, that if if you're someone who has not yet come to faith in Christ, that that deep ache and sense of longing is never going to get better until you come to uh, the one who is the author of life. And so that's the idea. Uh, The book of Hebrews is all about how great Jesus is, which means uh, it's going to be a lot of fun for us as we journey through it. We're just, just a few weeks in, it's week four, I think, and it'll take us 24 weeks for the whole thing. So that's where we're at. And so in, in weeks past leading up to this, and I don't know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna summarize everywhere we've been every week, but I do want us to be able to keep track and kind of a chain of logic what the argumentation is, is through this book, because as many of you know, uh, this is one letter. Uh, some would say this was written as a sermon. It, it looks less like a letter than, than some of the other New Testament epistles. However, the bottom line is there's, there's a train of thought moving through the whole thing. And, and as we study whole books of the Bible, we want to be able to kind of grasp the, that, that big theme. Of course, we're going to stop and focus on uh, smaller themes throughout. But the hope is by the end of this book, you'll, you'll have a, a good understanding of kind of the flow of the entire book of Hebrews. And so what we're looking at in chapter 1, he, he comes right out of the gate, the author, and, and says that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. And what he's dealing with is this tendency, this book is to uh, the Hebrews, there's this tendency to try to either hang on completely or partially to the tenets of Judaism, to the old sacrificial system and or the rules and laws that many were counting on through that system to uh, be righteous before God. And and that's not going to work. And so the author says that the Old Testament prophets were given pictures, pieces of the truth, that Jesus is the whole truth. And then he goes on to argue that Jesus is better than angels. There was many that worshipped angels in that time. And so he's trying to knock down every barrier that would stand between uh, these Hebrew Christians and, and us today uh, and giving full allegiance to Christ and, being, and or being distracted by, by worshiping other things or other people. And so chapter 2, so he makes those arguments, I think, very well. Chapter 2 takes a break and gives us an implication of the fact that Jesus is greater than even the Old Testament prophets and even the angels. What does that mean then? Well, then it, it means, and we looked at this last week, that we should take heed and treasure the gospel of our salvation. If, if messages that came through the prophets and through angels were important and we paid attention to those, then surely... When the Son of God himself brought us the message of his gospel, we would pay attention to that. And so it lifts up and elevates the gospel message to be treasured by us, hopefully. 
And then as we are going to move now into the second part of chapter two, it's, it's almost as if the author anticipates either the confusion or the outrage of those that would be reading what had been said so far. And so he, it's, you know, Jesus is better, here's what we should do about it, and now he's going to go back into, and, and it almost seems like he, through the help of the Holy Spirit, knows how people might feel about what he's said so far. So we're going to move back into some more explanation and argumentation. What it seems like the author is anticipating is the attitude of some that could be something to the effect of, well, how could Jesus be greater than the prophets or the angels? He was just a man. Why are you saying he's greater than these these prophets of old that God used in these incredible ways, how could you possibly say he's greater than the angels? Wasn't Jesus just a man? And there's actually a, a more passive but often more pernicious iteration of this attitude. And, and, and what it is, is it's to believe or act as if Jesus was just a man, but he was a really good man. So almost not the same way that, that the authors come in directly head on here, which is more... There's some that, that could be reading what this author is saying and thinking, well, I don't, I don't even know if Jesus was a, was a good guy or not. I, he was just a man, and you're talking about him like he's God, and that's wrong, right? And it's coming from that angle, but there's this other way that people try to kind of deal with the reality that we've talked about the last few weeks, that uh, <laughs> Jesus has made an impact in the world, Right? He showed up and, and did some things and said some things. Some things happened somehow 2,000 years ago that rocked the world and changed the face of humanity forever, right? And so in order to kind of grapple with that, there's not, I, most people don't want to take Jesus head on. Most people don't want to go after him and try to convince people Jesus is bad or that you shouldn't listen to Jesus because most people realize if, if you take that task on, like you're going to lose, People, for the most part, like Jesus, right? At least at, at one level. They really like Jesus as a man, maybe a good man that said good things and talked about being nice, and well, we like that, right? But some, and I think probably unwittingly sometimes, I don't think this is nefarious in its intent, sometimes people are trying, trying to escape the implication of Christ's rightful claim to their full allegiance by reducing him just to a really good man that, that shared some really good ideas that maybe we should you know, take on in, in the way that we act and think. And here's just, this is not an uncommon idea, but it, it's worth us saying at this juncture, Jesus didn't really leave us the option at all to put him in a bucket of really good men that said really good things. Only. Right, Because Jesus also said things like, I am God. Jesus also said things like, uh, "All who I'm the door, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? There's only one way to the Father, it's through me. He said some really exclusive, wild things. Jesus received worship from people. So Jesus made clear he saw himself as God and invited other people to do the same. And so what that means is he can't just be a really good man that said really good things. He was either a deceiver, deluded, or, or he deserves our worship. Those are really the only three options. I guess he could have been deceived and deluded, so maybe there's another you know, window over there. But here's the bottom line. You, you can't just say, oh yeah, I like, I like Jesus. You know, like, 
man Jesus and, and Beatitudes Jesus and, you know, Pithy Statement Jesus. I, li- I like that guy, but I don't know about the whole God stuff and worshiping him and, you know, needing him to, to get to God the Father. You know, I don't know about all that. Man, um, he just didn't leave us that option. We, we can't have it both ways. Either he was absolutely nuts or intentionally deceiving a bunch of people, or he was actually who he said he was and then deserves our worship, okay? <clears throat> so we began to unpack in verses five through eight last week the problem of sin and how it has affected humanity's original purpose. And what is that? Well, it's, it's hinted at and, and began to be unpacked even in what we read last week. So that purpose is to be image-bearing reflections of God's power and love in the world by exercising benevolent dominion over it, Right? That's, that's what we see laid out as, as part of the problem. What happened as Adam chose to disobey God and uh, all of humanity then kind of follows in his wake. We, God's original intent put Adam in the garden. Adam names the animals. Adam has dominion. Uh, Adam and Eve are supposed to take care of and tend the garden and be stewards and have authority as reflections of God's goodness and love in the earth. That went sideways as they took that authority that God had given them and then used it to disobey God instead of obey God. That set us on a trajectory. Uh, In the last section of what we read last week, it ends with a, a very tragic but very accurate statement that though we were originally made to rule as reflections of God's glory in the earth, that is not how it is now currently going. Everyone okay with that and understand what that means? Things are not perfect. Things are jacked up. There is much pain and destruction in the world. This is not what the original intention was supposed to look like. And had we stayed in a place of full, uh, humble obedience to God, it it would not have gone that way. But that's not where we are at. So it's, it's crucial, though, that we understand this part of the problem that sin caused. Because as... We now, now as we're pivoting into this week, it's part of what shows why it's so necessary for Jesus to become truly human in order to solve it. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's almost as if the author anticipated some people saying, man, Jesus was just a man. And he's going to say, oh yeah, he, he was a man. And there's very specific reasons why God did it that way. It was necessary broadly because it was man that handed over dominion and it was, it was going to have to be a representative of man that was going to bring and take that back, okay? And so that's part of why Jesus, it's part of why an angel couldn't save us. It's part of why Jesus couldn't send a magical unicorn savior. I mean, wouldn't that have been, made the Bible a bit more fun for some, right? Instead of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, down a rainbow comes a unicorn, and it's our savior unicorn, and the unicorn's gonna die for us. Why can't that work? Well, a unicorn did not fail to obey God in the garden and thus hand over the stewardship responsibility that it was given. Adam and Eve did that. And so a man was going to have to be able to fix it. This is part of why God had to take on flesh. Okay? This is why Jesus had to be born a man so that he could be our representative. And more about this is going to become clear as we read today. So, what verses 9 through 18 are going to do is, is allow us to walk around the precious jewel of Christ's redemptive work, and we'll be able to marvel as we see the light of his truth 
reflect through its, its many facets. Um, we're going to understand better today why Jesus needed to be a man in order to accomplish our salvation. And it's, it's really important because throughout church history, there's been, it's, it's very hard. Can we be honest and say it's very hard to understand the idea that Jesus, eternal God, took on flesh but didn't stop being God. That, God, that, that Jesus was somehow fully God and fully man. Can we be honest about, now we can, we can just kind of grab that at surface level and say, well, the Bible says it, so I'm going to believe it. And honestly, it's kind of where you end back up as you try to think your way through it. But the, the hypostatic union is a mind bender. Amen? So we're going to get a little bit of help, at least not, we're not going to get the nuts and bolts of like, how, how does eternal God take on flesh and retain his deity? Like, like and that's what many, I think, wish the Lord would have tried to write out for us. I just, I, it's far above our pay grade would be my guess is why he didn't even try. I doubt I'd get it. I doubt many of you that are much smarter than me would get it. I just don't think it's on our, our plane of possibility or he probably would have told us. But what he is going to take time to tell us and encourage us with is not necessarily the how of Jesus becoming a man, but the why. And that's maybe even more important for us to know. Okay, so we're looking at verses 9 through 18, Hebrews 2. Let's read this together. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Right? So this is coming out of verse 8 that said, we do not yet see all things subjected to man. Right? The original intention is broken. We don't see God's original intention playing out. But what do we see? That's a real bummer. Where's their hope? We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Praise God for his word. Now, if you hadn't read ahead today, you just came head on with the fact that we have much to discuss. So I hope you came ready uh, to work in our Bibles today. All right. So let's move back to verse nine. We're going to work through this together. The first kind of big principle here, and, and some of this loops back on itself, and, and some of the argumentation is, is somewhat 
redundant, but it, it, that doesn't in any way affect its beauty. This is an incredibly beautiful passage of Scripture that we should spend much more time in than just this morning as believers. But the first kind of big principle here is, we see him made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So kind of principle number one of why Jesus needed to become a man in order to bring us the hope of salvation, became a man so that he could die, right? Because eternal God would not have been able to die in our place for our sins. Why does he need to die? Well, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first half of that, the wages of sin is death, is, is really just a repeating of what God said very plainly in the garden, Right? Have whatever you want, have a great time, eat all these fruit, just not that one. If you eat that one, you will surely die. And then we got this slithery little punk snake coming up, cast in doubt, right? Did God, did God really say? Oh, no, no, no. You won't die. You'll, you'll be like God. You'll, you'll, you'll know good and evil. And, and even in that idea of knowing good and evil, there's this, friends, get this. This is important for us. There's this idea of not just being able to identify, oh, that's good, that's evil, but in that knowing good and evil, it's being able to determine for yourself what is good and evil. A big part of the original sin was this desire to break free from the perception of God keeping us away, bonding us from something good, which is never what he's doing. God is always working for what is best for us. And so this idea that Sin brings death, right? The wages of sin is death. All have sinned. And so for God, in order for God to be just, in order for God to not just, some, some think like, whoa, what about why Jesus and the cross and the blood and all the stuff? I don't get it. It seems so violent. And, and I get that. I wholeheartedly understand where you could be on that. But, but the, the disconnect there is not that, that God is, is some, you know, blood cult leader, wacko guy. It's the, the disconnect there of not understanding why, why would there have to be death to pay for sin? The issue is not understanding how incredibly wicked and terrible and destructive sin is. The very nature of what it means to, to, to turn away from and disobey a God of perfect holiness, perfect love, all good with only good intentions toward us, to, to, to say to that God, I don't want you, I want to do my own thing. And, and however that plays out, all sins ultimately come down to this idea of, of pride and us deciding either we don't care what God thinks or we, we know we think better than, we know better than what God thinks. Oh, man. Sin leads to death. It's not as if every time there's a sin, God needs to come dole out the punishment of death. All the time, always, if God is the very source of life, then to sever yourself from him leads to what? And we sever ourselves from him in disobedience to him. The relationship to him is predicated upon being connected to him, walking in the light with him. And when we choose darkness, we sever that connection. Jesus came to restore that connection. And in order to die, to be the one that was going to take the death all of us should have received, 
just, just flat out, you can't kill eternal God. So he took on humanity to the degree that he could be killed, that he could pay the penalty. That's kind of principle one of why Jesus had to become a man and why an angel couldn't be our savior. A magical unicorn couldn't be our savior. It had to be God in the flesh. Amen. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Does does that phrase not, to some degree, just... (laughs) To me, that that phrase strums the strings of of my heart. For, For whom are all things... And through whom are all things. All things are for him. All things are through him. He is all in all. It it speaks to the the sovereignty of God. That phrase written upon our hearts will help us in in times of trouble, in times of doubt, in times of worry. That there's a God that we can talk about like this. And that he's ours and we're his. For whom are all things and through whom are all things. In bringing many sons to glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, is there anybody that's brave enough to say something out loud in here that has a different translation than New American Standard in here right now? Would you raise your hand? Okay, what does that say? Where this says author in the New American Standard, verse 10, to perfect the author of their salvation, what does your translation say? What is it? You've got founder, okay, good. Leader, yep, that's another good word. Okay, some translations, those, are, those both capture the idea perfectly. Pioneer, that's really where I was after. I think it's maybe the clearest and best translation of what's trying to be said there. So you've got, uh, NASB says author, leader, founder, right? Pioneer, some of your translations will even say captain. I like that one too. Captain, pioneer, what is the idea being conveyed here? The idea is that Jesus, and I don't know, this is, this is kind of a hard concept to grab, but this verse helps us to understand it. What does a pioneer do? Um, what, does a, what does a good leader do? What does a good captain do? They're, they're not somebody that's going to hang back and just give you a bunch of instructions and kind of send you into danger and, and see if you'll, you'll find all the danger first so they can walk behind you once, once the problems are all solved. A pioneer a captain, a leader, the author of our salvation, he went first. Part of why Jesus had to become a man was so that he could go first. He is the first to live as a human, to die as a human, to rise by the power of God and to be restored into full fellowship with God at the end of that process. All of us, this brethren talk that's coming, all of us are going to walk the same path that Jesus walked. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He's the one that went through the jungle first with the machete, cut all the dangerous plants out of the way, got all the obstacles moved so that we can come behind him. And that's, to those of you who are in leadership positions in any capacity, can I, can I just speak this word of encouragement to you from the leadership model of Jesus? We don't just see it in this most ultimate sense where he was the first to go through the restoration process that was going to bring sinful humans back to God, right? Jesus wasn't sinful, but he took on the sin of mankind at the cross, and that's, where, that's how he was, and then he gave up his life, 
but then rose from the grave. And that is what's going to happen for all of us. We're going to follow after big brother Jesus to the throne room of God. Amen. Right? But it's, it's not just in that ultimate sense that we see Jesus as a leader going first. It, it was all throughout his ministry. It was the idea of, I'm just, I'm trying to talk to leaders for a second about the way you conceptualize leadership because a lot of times Struggles that we're having in this culture that had to do with family structures, struggles we're having in this culture that had to do with church governance and authority and how all that works, struggles that we're having in this culture with, with just authority, the idea of authority, period, most of it comes from the fact that many people don't understand what leadership really should look like and who the best example of a leader ever was. Because it's Jesus And how did Jesus lead? Did Jesus lead by barking orders and asking his disciples to do a bunch of stuff he would never be willing to do and wait on him hand and foot? No, I see a picture of Jesus who had, if anybody ever had a right to demand to be waited on hand and foot, if anybody ever had a right to demand that you you should be anticipating what I might need and just making my life easier, if anybody had the right to do that, it's King Jesus Almighty, and yet he stripped himself, took a towel, and washed the feet of his Disciples. That's leadership in the mold of Christ. And whether you're, you're an aspiring leader or you're a leader now, let that sink into your heart and form the way you understand leadership. Husbands, let that form the way you understand what it means for you to lead your home spiritually. Bosses, let it form the way you lead the people who are underneath you. Leaders go first. Leaders eat last. Leaders serve most, always, because Jesus set the example. Now, I understand the temptation that comes right on the backside of me saying that, which is, well, what if I, man, if I'm humble like that, if I'm always willing to take the hit, if I'm always willing to go first and go lowest, how am I not going to be taken advantage of? That's a great question. I wish I, well, I don't wish I had a better answer for you than this, but um, because this is the real answer, but you will be taken advantage of. Absolutely, that will happen. And I'm not saying that leadership never requires dealing with people that um, have toxic behaviors and all of that. Of course, that's part of what it means. However, God is the one who vindicates in the end. That's really the answer to our fears of, oh man, if, I, if I'm too humble, if, I, if, I, if, if I'm willing to sacrifice too much in terms of, of, of being a leader that, that goes by the example that Christ said, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up getting used and abused as a result of that. Look, some people will perceive that as weakness, but it's because they're wrong and they don't understand what real strength is. God will make sure things are sorted in the end. Those that take advantage of you, the hope is God deals with them, they're convicted, and they change before they end up on a head-on collision course with the justice of God and do not have the grace of God to cover them. Amen? Which what you don't have to be concerned about is people getting away with stuff. No one gets away with anything. Either they're going to pay the penalty of their sin or Jesus paid it. But all sin is going to be dealt with. So that's, thank God, we're sitting here today real happy the fact that sins that we've committed are going to be dealt with by God's grace, but we can also take heart to know that sins that have been committed against us, God's going to take care of, either through the sacrifice of Christ 
or they'll be standing on their own. Wouldn't want to be the latter. Okay? Jesus is the author, captain, pioneer of our salvation. Something else we need to just take a minute to look at here because it could be confusing and it has been confusing for many people. When it says to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So some people, reading scripture out of context, not understanding the flow of the argumentation, have looked at that and said, okay, so what that implies to me is that somehow through his sufferings, Jesus wasn't perfect and now he was made perfect. So we have this baseline root doctrine about the character and nature of Christ that he was perfectly sinless, which is again part of why he could stand in as a substitute and as, as the, the final perfect sacrifice for the sins of humanity, right? That out of love, he took a punishment he didn't deserve. That this satisfied the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God for all of time, for all of the sins of those who would seek grace through faith in Christ, right? So, but what, so what is it saying? It's, you, you could read that and with a lack of understanding think, oh man, well, Jesus was born imperfect and he had to be made perfect, uh, through sufferings. That's not actually what it means. For Jesus to be made a man so that he could experience suffering in the way that a human does, he was, he was not being perfected in, 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 the, in the idea of like he was, he was sinful and needed to be made perfect and, and be rid of sin. It was, it was through being made a man, experiencing the suffering that comes along with being a human, that he was made a perfect savior, a perfect author, a perfect captain, a perfect pioneer. Had he not, again, the same argumentation is happening. The author is, is beating the pinata of, it was really important that Jesus became a man. Don't use that fact that Jesus was clearly human, that he ate and he walked and he didn't float around in an ethereal glory cloud the entire time he was here, that he, he did regular old human stuff. Don't let that make you think for one second that he is not the Messiah, the Savior, the King. He, he, is a, he, he, is, he was a man, he is a man. Jesus' humanity didn't, didn't melt away at the resurrection. It, it, that's, why, that's why he's the pioneer, right? He made himself like us so that he could go first and blaze the trail so that all of us could follow him and in eternity will celebrate his great pioneering ability because he made a beautiful trail for us to follow. But the point being there is Jesus becoming a human so that he could suffer like us, so that he could die like us, is what made him a perfect savior. Not that he was imperfect and needed to be made perfect through sufferings. Everyone understand that? That's really important. Jesus being perfect is, is a key, in a sin sense, that he's sinless, is a key part of understanding how our salvation works, period. Okay, so don't want to be confused by that. <clears throat> you guys happy about that? That Jesus is a perfect pioneer, author, captain of your salvation? I'm pretty excited about it. I'm thankful. Now, I'm not even to the most exciting part of this yet, so y'all better catch up. All right? Amen. Verse 11. In verse 11, we have quotes from the Psalms. Again, this, this author knows his Old Testament and makes almost no arguments without bringing in Old Testament scripture, which I think is just a good also example for us. Um, don't, be, don't be making a bunch of big arguments about anything without thinking about how the scripture talks about it. 
That's, that's this guy's model, and I think something we should follow. But we've got quotes here from Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms and Isaiah. What do we see here? Uh, again, starting in uh, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I, I want that to just sink into your heart and mind for a second, that Jesus, knowing everything about you, all the nasty things you've done, said, and thought, is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. I hope that means something to you. It should. That'll help you if you let it. And then he begins to quote Old Testament scriptures to that idea. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, uh, this is the quote from Isaiah. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Uh, So that's verses 11 through 13. You see this idea here again. We, We saw it in Hebrews 1 verse 6, this idea of Jesus as the firstborn, okay? That's again, I, I told you to be, I've told you many times throughout this series, guys, when, when, when we decided to take Hebrews on, and you might be saying, look, dude, I didn't get a vote. Well, I told you we're gonna preach through Hebrews and you showed up, so you voted with your feet. You're here, all right? So <laughs> we're gonna, this, there's some heavy theological lifting to do through Hebrews, man. You're not gonna come out of the other side of this without having some serious exposure to doctrinal truth which is good for you. I'm going to keep making the case about that. That's really good for us. We should deal with these things and grapple with these things because some of the deeper, beautiful intricacies of the mystery of how God has saved us is something that we can cling to, man, in the midst of trying to traverse this world that's all jacked up because of sin. These are beautiful truths, pearls of great price. Okay, so this idea we saw in Hebrews 1, uh, 1, 6, when the Bible talks about Jesus as the firstborn, okay, again, we, that is not a reference to all the way back at the beginning of, I mean, you can't even talk about it that way, like eternity past, there was not some point where God the Father made God the Son, and then made God the Holy Spirit, and then said, you know what would be cool? Angels, let's do those. And then down the line somewhere came humanity. The book of John is clear about this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, right? So that's just one example of the the unanimous teaching of Scriptures. The Scriptures, go back to Genesis. What does God say? I'm going to make man in my image. No, let us make man in our image, okay? Right? So this, this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, from eternity past, there's no point where Jesus, Jesus is not firstborn in that sense, but he is firstborn among this brethren. He's the first one, again, who lived life, died, rose from the grave, and was restored through that redemptive process, the power of God. He's the firstborn in that sense, right? This is part of what Jesus meant when he said we would have to be born again, that part of what it means to be saved from sin and brought from death to life is to be born again. Right? And even that's a weird concept. He said it to Nicodemus, who was a really smart guy. And Nicodemus is like, what do you mean, bro? Are we talking about like going back in? Because that's weird. I don't know what that, how that would work. Right? You know what I mean? It's, it's, but all of these images, all these pictures God's giving us to understand the great wonder and mystery of, of salvation is, yes, when you're trying to, how many of you have ever struggled to explain something to a kid? They, they just, they wander with their little mind into some area that it's like, what, how do you, how did you even think to ask that question? 
You ever had that experience, anybody? Right? I mean, that's, that's, what, that's the situation God's in with us. Like, time's a million, right? <laughs> you know? Trying to explain some complex thing to a kid. And I, I know I've had times where it's like, oh, yeah. And so I'll give them some little word picture. And I'm like, ooh, you know what? That actually is, hold on, scrap that. Let me think about it again, right? But God has given us multiple different ways to see this. And being, being born again is, is one way to understand salvation. Jesus is the firstborn. He went first. He's the first one to die and to rise and to walk that path that we're all eventually going to walk who trust him by faith, okay? And so what that means is Jesus lived, died, and rose in order to clear every obstruction to our eternal home, our eternal father, and our eternal family. Jesus lived, died, and rose to clear every obstruction to our eternal home, our eternal father, and our eternal family. To the praise of his glorious name. Amen. Verse 14. Therefore, right, this all flows together. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So now we're getting to some implications of the fact that God pulled off this grand plan of redemption, that Jesus walked it out perfectly. What's one thing that happened? Well, we see that him who had the power of death, that is the devil, was now rendered powerless through this process. And here's the thing. It's, you know, we jump back up to what we were looking at last week. You know, we do not yet see the earth subject to uh, humans in perfect relationship with God, right? What, what, what am I talking about? We look at the world, we look at how dark things are, we look at how, how absolutely um, terrifying sometimes the, the world can try to be to us. And it, it, I don't know that most of us would conceptualize the devil and the forces of darkness at this point as powerless. But they are powerless in terms of, of this fear of death, and that's what he's going to move into next. But I just I want to I say this. Because you might even think, well, hold on, man. I don't know what this guy's talking about, but Peter said that, that the devil's like a roaring lion. Like, that doesn't sound powerless, right? You might be thinking, whoo, maybe these guys need to sit down and talk and decide, like, is the devil powerless or is the devil like a roaring lion? But I would just submit to you that they don't actually disagree. Because what Peter actually said is the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Whom he made about. It doesn't say he's running around taking down people that are wearing the armor of God, that have the breastplate of righteousness upon them, that have the, the helmet of salvation on. It doesn't say that. It says he's roaming around seeking whom he may devour. And so when I conceptualize that idea, when I'm thinking about it, man, I, I, I see a toothless lion. With, with, you know, like, like with his dentures out. You feel me? It's, it's a lot less scary. And what does this lion do? He goes around and roars, seeking whom he may devour. Almost the way it works is this, this lion roars, and if he can get you convinced that he's scarier than he is, and he can get you running, I mean, that's, that's sometimes how pack animals hunt. They'll, they'll hunt together, and they'll, they'll, they'll start driving these animals, and they want to run them and run them and run them and run them until they get too tired. Then they jump on them. Because actually, this animal, if they, if they just took it head on, they, they know they'd lose but they need to wear it out first. They need to get it all fatigued. They need to get it, get it real scared and not thinking right anymore and making bad decisions, falling in holes or whatever. That's really how the devil's doing it. 
And, and James 4 says that if we submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee for us. So, so part of what I want to say, friends, is whatever it looks like right now in, you, in your life, for the, for the devil to roar, instead of getting all, all, all freaked out and running, I was run to the roar. Because if you submit to God and resist the devil, what does, what does the Bible say will happen? He will flee from you. But if you run from him, it's just like they tell you, man, you go to the national parks and they're like, hey, there's bears here. If a bear pops up, here's what you don't do. Turn around and run. Because that animal's got an instinct that when you run, it's going to chase. It's just like your kitty cat at home with the laser, right? You give it something to chase, that thing, you, you see like their ears go back and their eyes get all crazy. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so the analogy stands, man. If, if you start, you hear the lion roar and you start running, yeah. He, he's going to come after you, be emboldened by that. Move towards him and, 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 and with a Bible in your hand. And remember, man, this is, this, this is a lion with gums, not teeth. This is a lion that if you get a real look at him, you'd laugh that that roar came out of him. You'd say, this is a lion swinging, swinging above what he can actually, he, his, his mouth's writing checks that his butt can't cash. You understand what I'm saying? That's how the Bible talks about him. But, it's, but often we let that roar convince us otherwise. And so we're running from things we ought not run from. We're scared of things we ought not be scared of. <clears throat> which leads to pain for us and it detracts from the glory of God who sent us into this world to uh, put boots in lion faces. Amen. So that leads us to this idea, you know, verse 14, that, that this part of what Jesus did, another reason Jesus became a man and, and what he was doing and dying was taking the power of death from the devil. The devil doesn't actually have the power. Jesus now holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Satan's not in control. Now, verse 15 says, so he's doing that, taking the power from the devil, and that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We're going to think about this together in a minute because it's real important. That's a big statement. That through the fear of death, Part of what Jesus came to do was to set free those who, because of the fear of death, were slaves all of their lives. That's important. That's a, that's a big statement we need to unpack. This is going to seem like a, a jaunt to the left, but it's not. Just hang with me. Have you ever heard someone say, well, either about someone else, or maybe they're cautioning you against seeming maybe maybe too radically focused on the things of God. Have you ever heard this phrase that somebody can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? You heard that before? If you haven't, then I'm just, I'm telling you right now, it's a phrase that people use. Well, you don't want to be, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good now, do you? You don't want to do that. I, what I just like to say about that idea, and I'm sure I've said it, having not thought about this enough, I can say with confidence, I've never met someone who fits that bill. So heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I've never met that person. Now, I do know that there are carnally minded people who are too entangled in the trappings of this life that they'll lob that around because they don't like feeling convicted by people that are maybe more spiritual than they are. 
or more heavenly minded than they are or more biblically minded than they are. I've heard people jest about other people who seem too spiritual. All all they ever want to talk about is give give me a a Bible verse if I have a problem. Okay. (laughs) What do you want? You want a quote from Esquire or New York Times or what? I'll take a Bible verse. I mean, even if the Bible verse is wrong, I'd take that over some of that other stuff. Even if, even if you're quoting it wrong, I'd still take that. At least we're barking up the right tree. Sometimes people will also use the language of, of hyper-spiritual, and, and I know I've used that language as well, but I, contemplating it par- partly out of this, but this is something I've been thinking about for months, maybe a couple years now. Even that idea of hyper-spiritual, it's, it's not the best way to describe what can be an unhealthy or unhelpful tendency. I'm not trying to say there is um, never a case where maybe somebody that might say to someone, oh, you don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, or someone might say someone's hyper-spiritual. I'm not saying that they aren't sometimes pointing to something that is real and probable, a problem, but a better way to talk about that than calling it hyper-spiritual, as if you can be too spiritual, uh, would be unbiblical. Okay, what, what, what do I mean by this? Well, the best example I can think of is, is 1 Kings 19, right? Where Elijah just got done whooping the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Um, and, and you know how that happened, right? They've got 450, they're dancing and cutting themselves, doing their thing. Uh, Baal doesn't show. Elijah pours water on his sacrifice, calls fire down from heaven, whoosh, right? So like, I don't know, big W, for the kingdom of God right there, and he got to be a part of it. That's pretty awesome. But then the very next chapter, we see this fella running out to the desert, crawling up under a juniper tree and asking God to kill him. Lord, kill me. I'm done. Clearly, dealing with some kind of exhaustion, depression, maybe a mixture of all of that. I mean, the guy's suicidal. Thankfully, not to the point he's foolish enough to take his own life, but he's asking God to end it in earnest, right? And here's the thing, there are many well-meaning Christians that if they could, if they could be, uh, you know, time-machined to Elijah under the juniper tree, you know, they would, <clears throat> they would suggest, oh, well, Elijah, the problem is you, you just don't have enough faith, man. If you just have more faith, then you won't feel like this. Okay, super Christian, I'm going to put you up against the 450 prophets of Baal and see how you come out, like if you get fire from heaven. Probably not. Elijah was doing pretty good in the faith department. Right? Faith chops. 100%. All right? Well, Elijah, maybe you just need to, maybe you feel bad like this, you just need to pray more. Guy was praying a lot. Talking to God a lot. I don't think that was the problem. Well, are you sure? Yeah, because God sent an angel to give Elijah bread and water and tell him to take a long nap. Okay, so what some people may say, oh, well, so, so the person that would, would say to Elijah in the condition he was in, oh, you just need more faith, man. If you get your faith right, you won't feel bad anymore. Man, if you just pray some more, just pray harder. You probably haven't prayed hard enough, right? If you do that, you won't feel bad anymore. You know, if they were there giving that advice and then the angel that the Lord sent to deal with what we were dealing with right here with bread and water and, and, and a nap, 
I, I would expect that that angel on, on his way to bring the bread and water would smack that well-meaning Christian right upside their head and say, shut up and go sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. You're being unbiblical. Because we are not just spiritual beings. We are physical beings. And when we're struggling and going through things, we need to be addressed holistically as a person. And the Bible leads us with that kind of wisdom. So I understand what people are sometimes meaning by hyper-spiritual, or you could be so heavenly-minded, you know, earthly good. But that's not what's happening in those situations that we just laid out there. It's, and what, what is my point that I'm getting to? Why, does this, is this a rabbit trail? No. Here's why. Because I want to make sure that we don't forsake the freedom our king paid for with his blood by rationalizing it away or making excuses because the chains of slavery to the fear of death have gotten comfortable on our wrists. I don't want us to encounter this great passage of scripture today that says the death of Christ freed those who have been slaves to the fear of death all of their life, and I don't want us to just gloss over that with, well, I don't, I don't want to be hyper-spiritual about it. Why? Because your Lord wants you free of the fear of death and all that it brings. And I'm going to submit to you that I think there's two ways to fear death. The first is good old-fashioned death, the way we all would normally think of it, right? The cessation of physical life. Jesus, this idea all ties together, Jesus being the author, the pioneer, the captain of our salvation, and what it is he is saving us to, right? An eternal country, an eternal family, an eternal father, an eternal home, a place where sin and striving cease, a place where all of the effects of sin are no longer. What we are being saved to should make us yearn for the privilege of entering that eternal country. Most of you have probably heard this. This is a fairly well-known C.S. Lewis quote, but he said, if we find in ourselves desires that this world cannot satisfy, the most probable answer then is that you were made for another world. If you find in yourself desires nothing in this world can satisfy, then logic would dictate you were made for another world. But here's the question today, friends. Do we find in ourselves desires that can't be satisfied in this world? Or have we settled for lesser things and trinkets? Have we not allowed ourselves to hunger and thirst for that great and ultimate and final freedom that comes in being in the presence of our perfect, holy, glorious Father in our eternal country? Are you satisfied? Do you not find in yourself a yearning for something more than what you're finding here and now? If that's the case, then something's broken. And if that's the case, then of course you would fear death. There's no yearning pulling you to the greater that comes. You're satisfied here. You've made a home here when you've been called to be an alien and a sojourner. You've been called to conceptualize this entire plane of existence as passing through. You must say, oh, well, that's cliche. I don't care if it's cliche. Sometimes cliches are cliches because they're true. We have this idea, 
Some of you might be saying, well, what, what you're saying doesn't really sound like I, you're encouraging us towards gratitude. And didn't did God say that he wants us to be grateful in every circumstance? Yes, this is another one of those beautiful places where the Bible puts you in a tension point that should put you on your knees understanding you can't do this without God. Because all at once, we are called to be grateful, full of thanksgiving for what is going on in this plane right now, and yet have a holy dissatisfaction the entire time we find ourselves here as we yearn for our heavenly home. Thankful and yet dissatisfied. What? How do I do both of those? I know you need the Holy Spirit. How do I not just settle into one or the other? Oh, that's for sure the temptation. Absolutely. But both need to exist in tension, in holy tension in the life of every believer. There's much that I'm thankful for. There's much, there's much evidence of God's merciful grace in my life as it stands right now and I am thankful for all the good things all the glimpses of goodness he has let me experience in the here and now. But it is not enough. It will not be enough until I am united with him. It will not be enough until the light of his unveiled face shines upon me, unobstructed. There should be a yearning. This is how Paul could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is not just flowery language from hyper-spiritual apostles and not something that we're meant to just look at and ooh and ah. It's what Christ made possible for each one of us to genuinely be able to say to live for me, to live as Christ, to die is gain. One commentator, and guys, I am, look, I love this flock and I don't want anybody to... to feel condemned and we're going to, this passage doesn't let you end up feeling condemned. We'll get there. But I don't know if this was the intention. I don't want to disparage anybody, but I came across a commentator that in, in dealing with this passage made this distinction between death and dying, right? There's this fear of death that Christ has set us free from through his redemptive work. And this commentator made a distinction like, well, we don't want to be free of fear, have fear of death, which is like, like the, that ultimate end that leads to ultimate glory, but, but it's fine to be afraid of dying, right? Maybe you're not afraid of that, that, that last bit, which is death and then eternity. And, and I think some of us, if we're honest, it's even that that still scares us. The unknown of eternity is, is something that we've allowed fear to seize our heart about. But their point is, the point of this commentator is, well, you know, maybe you're... you're you're afraid of some very difficult way of dying, maybe some slow and hard way of dying. Think of disease or some particularly brutal way of dying, and maybe, maybe you have a fear of that, and well, that's perfectly rational. <clears throat> I, I don't think so. I know that softens it a little bit and maybe makes this set of scriptures a little easier to swallow, but here's my problem with that. Fear not or have no fear. Fear not or have no fear is the most common phrase in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Fear not, followed up most commonly by, for I am God. Fear not because of who I am. Fear not because I have said that I am for you. Fear not because I am good and I am powerful and I'm with you. Fear not. Fear seems to be something. God has no desire for in his children. And again, this, it's important that we don't, 
Many of you right now, I hope, if you've listened at all thus far, you are examining yourself and all of us are realizing there are places where fear has crept into our life. The answer then is not to shrivel into a ball of condemnation thinking, oh, that what's happening today is Pastor Vince is coming with a, a, a hammer-shaped piece of the word of God and trying to beat on us. This is not beating us down. This is inviting us to freedom. We have to, we have to rethink what fear is. It's actually chains on the wrist. It's bondage. It's destruction, and this is an invitation that you can take those off, and you can be free. Fear not is the most common phrase in the scripture, and the book of 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. Do we have perfect love in Christ and his gospel? That was a softball love city. Do we have perfect love in Christ and his gospel? There you go, you hit it back. Good job. If perfect love then casts out fear, we got to know we are perfectly loved and we have been freed to overcome. We've been freed to be overcome by love for God and love for others. We have everything we need for fear to be cast out. If perfect love casts out fear, we've received it and we've been given the equipment then to share it. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, I, <clears throat> I want to I be honest for a moment about, so I believe this, I'm preaching this at, right now, and I'm preaching it hard. But it doesn't mean I <laughs> have this figured out. And so I want to be honest for a second about how the fear of death tries to get on me. Because as I sat and thought about it, what, to what degree am I walking in the freedom being offered to me here? To what degree am I letting perfect love cast out fear in every area of my life so that I can be even more of a usable tool in the hand of, of my captain? <clears throat> the, the way the fear of death tries to get on me is not, I, I, don't, I don't fear eternity. I mean, the, the whole yearning for that part, if that gets out of balance and like you're, you're yearning too much for your eternal country at the expense of what's going on here, I, I probably tend that way. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's, <clears throat> boy. Uh, but to live is Christ. And so I'm here and I'm thankful. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? But, so I don't fear that. And I don't really fear dying in turn, whatever, right? Like I, you know, part of what's wrong with me is when I was young, uh, I knew I was going to do some work on the mission field, and I told one of my relatives that, and they, they bought me the book um, Jesus Freaks by DC Talk to try to scare me out of ever going to the mission field. That was their intention, because it's a book about martyrs. And they're, they're like, you know, this, this particular family member obviously thought I was being hyper-spiritual, right? <laughs> or too heavenly. I was like, man, I'm going to go... I'm going to build churches in other countries. I'm going to preach in them, and that, I know that's going to happen. And so it gives me that book, you know, and, it's, and so I'm, I'm reading this book. It's like a, a modern version of Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've ever read that. And uh, I, I got done with that book, came back, and I was like, man, thank you so much for this book. I'm so much more excited now to do the work of God. Like, I, you know, to, to, die, to be able to die... In, in, in direct service of God to his honor and glory, I just, uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not afraid of that. I just pray that I could do it well. That's where I'm at mentally about it. So those, I'm not afraid of death in, in those ways. Uh, 
you know, I've had enough pain in my body over the last 37 years that pain doesn't really scare me a whole lot. But I'll tell you what does get on me is when I, if I let my mind, you know, you guys know how it is. You start to imagine, okay, if I died, then what happens? And, and then my mind <clears throat> goes to my family and then goes to this church. I start to think, okay, what is that going to mean? I start to think about my kids and my wife and I think about all of you and what, what God has called me to do here and, and what it would mean, how many of you would feel if I died. And uh, then, then fear will try to grab my heart about then what would happen for my family and, and for the church. But ultimately, as I've sat and thought about it, worked through it, worked through these verses many times, um, it, it, I, the right answer is that thought exercise is a corrective for me in the here and now. Because here, if I'm worried about that to the, fear that I have, to the point that I have fear about it, then that means I am, I am too much convinced of my importance in either of those equations. Because if I was to die, God will take care of my family because God's taking care of my family now. He just happens to be using me as a socket wrench in, in the toolkit to take care of my family right now, but he can switch that socket wrench out at any time. God happens to be using me as a socket wrench for all that's happening through the, the ministry of Love City Church right now. He could switch that tool out at any time. Some of you are going, yeah, it could probably be a better socket wrench. Well, just give me a break, man. I know, sure, right? Fair, but whatever. He hasn't hit me with a bus yet, so here I am. Uh, deal with it, amen? <clears throat> God will take care of this church and he'll take care of my wife and kids. I have no reason for fear of death because he's doing it now. Amen. Uh, the second way I think we fear death is realizing that surrender to God means death to ourselves. I think sometimes the fear of death is, is not even necessarily fearing death in, in kind of the ultimate cessation of life sense, but it's fearing the reality that if I'm going to fully surrender to God, it's going to mean a, a very real sense in which I'm dying to myself. Let me, let me read you some verses that lay that idea out. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Luke 9, 23 and 24, and he was saying to them, this is Jesus, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Romans 6.11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, <laughs> we fear the full vulnerability of surrender because oftentimes we cling to the illusion of control. I'm going to say that again. Oftentimes we fear the full vulnerability of surrender, dying to ourselves because we cling to the illusion of control. Let me help you with something. 
You're not in control. You might think you are, but that's an illusion. Because we are all driven by something. We will be slaves to sin and self or slaves to God. One leads to destruction and death. One leads to life and the only true freedom that can be found. But I want you to make no mistake today. You have a master. One is trying to drag you down to eternal death. The other lift you to eternal life. But we got to choose today and every day who we're going to serve. Because even as followers of Christ, we can get intimidated by that roaring lion and, and you, you might think, well, I'm not, I'm not serving the roaring lion. I'm just running from him. You're doing what he wants you to do. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you realize you're doing what he wants you to do. Whether fear of physical death or dying to ourselves, whichever way this has, this has hit you today, if you've been listening so far, you're, you're probably feeling some level of conviction And what I want to make sure we know is that the enemy of our souls would like to drag us into condemnation, to poison the life-giving well that godly conviction is supposed to be. And and what I'm so thankful for is that God knows about this tendency. He knows about this tactic. And and he inspired the the writer of Hebrews to end this section with an antidote to condemning lies that would try to drown you and I in hopelessness. You know, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know about you, but the call to freedom that looks like a complete eradication of any fear of death or full surrender or whatever, that, that, that's a very high bar to reach. And one possible thing that happens when you realize just how much God is calling you to as his followers is to get discouraged about it. Uh, The other is to realize that he's never calling you to something that he's not going to also walk with you through. So the the writer here ends, he he cuts off our ability, if we're paying attention, to get into condemnation over the fact that none of us are fully free of fear in our life. Can we be honest about that? We're not there. But I... I want to I be more free of fear tomorrow than I am today by God's power and through the truth of his word, the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he assuredly does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. This shows us that we are on God's mind, that we are precious to him above all the rest of creation. And uh, he's, he's going to be here for us. And what does that look like? Verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be make, made like his brethren in all things. So he's, the author's still talking about why Jesus needed to be human. Why he couldn't just come as God. He couldn't just come as a spirit. He couldn't send a magic unicorn. Jesus had to be a man. He's still making the argument. So therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, I think oftentimes it's easy to dismiss this idea, thinking that, well, okay, yeah, all right, sure, Jesus was human, I don't know how that works, but he was also God. So was, was temptation real for him, or was it just kind of an act, and so he doesn't really understand how I feel, or what it's like to be tempted. 
Let me just read you this. I know we're almost done, okay? This is Matthew 26, accounting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and he began to be grieved and distressed. Grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and praying, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying so that you do not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time, praying, saying, my father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink from it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again. He went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Behold, the one who is betraying me is near. Friends, Jesus did understand temptation. He did understand what it means to feel the frailty of humanity. And this this whole idea, what Hebrews is pointing us to and what this set of scriptures in Matthew is an example of, can help us in at least three ways. First of all, when we're thinking about, right now you could have read that and been like, hold on buddy, you didn't do a very good job today. You just undid your whole argument because it looks like Jesus was afraid of death right there, doesn't it? No. First of all, it doesn't say anything about him being afraid. He was greatly distressed and grieved. But even if he was afraid, what he was staring at was not death. That's not what had him shook up. It was the cup. What do you keep asking for God to take? The cup, the cup. What is the cup? The cup is the fullness of God's wrath that he was going to have to take so that we don't have to. And here's the good news, friends. Here's something that should make us have no fear of death. We will never drink the cup because he did. That's why we're the only ones in the earth that shouldn't, everyone else should be terrified of death. But those who belong to Christ should have none of that fear. Because it is only through faith in the one who drank the cup for you that you avoid having to drink it yourself. But that is the number one reason, friends, that there is no fear in death for us that he took that cup and he did drink it every last drop. We will never drink the cup of God's wrath. The other thing we can be encouraged in is as Jesus was tempted here, what was he tempted to? He was tempted to run from that. Lord, if there's any other way, please do it. But his answer always in that was, not as I will, but as you will. Most of you remember that as, not my will, but yours be done. Right? Not my will, but yours be done. That helps us right there. That gives us an example of of how we can pray when we're tempted, of how we can come to God when we're struggling. Lord, this is hard. This thing you've called me to is hard. I don't feel like I can do this, but not my will. Yours be done. And at the end of all of it, as we truly mull over the, the call to freedom from a fear of death, 100% free of the fear of death, and we realize I'm, I am not doing so hot at that. We have this promise. 
he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That this Jesus, this Jesus who stood staring at the face of of the wrath of God, of, of the cup of the wrath of God, and still said, not my will but yours be done. This Jesus who went forward and took the cross for us. This Jesus who rose from the grave just like he said he would. This Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit just like he said he would. This Jesus who's kept every promise he's ever made. He is able to come to your aid. And so friend, the answer today is not, all right, here you go. Take on a bunch more condemnation and a bunch more realization that you're not living up to God's standard. That's the point of the sermon. That's not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is, Let's first of all see this invitation we have to more freedom now, more freedom in the future than we have now from the fear of death. There is always more freedom to be had in that area. And then when I fall short in it, then when when I do end up preferring those shackles over the unknown, when I'm struggling with that fear of death, I have Jesus himself, the faithful high priest who understands what it's like to be tempted, who understands what it's like to be frail. The whole point, the end of this section should help us understand how Jesus is coming to us. Guys, he's not coming to beat up on us. He's coming to our aid. When we're frail and struggling and fighting and feeling like we're failing, he's not coming to kick us when we're down. He's coming to lift us up and to say, I totally get what you're going through. And it's real. Because whatever it is that we're dealing with, friends, It is not the cup of God's wrath. We will never have to endure something so difficult to deal with as Jesus has. Our temptations to run from whatever we're tempted to run from or run to whatever we're tempted to run to, there will be no temptation like the temptation you would feel running from the cup of God's wrath, particularly when you didn't deserve it. (laughs) But love casts out fear. Because for the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was able, out of love for the Father and out of love for you and love for me, he was able to endure. He was able to push past the fear of death. Push past the fear of all that was laying before him. And that guy, that fella, will come to your aid. And I hope you're encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you so much that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you inspired this author to anticipate our struggle with the humanity of Christ, that, that we wouldn't imagine our, our great Savior being like us. That doesn't, we look for heroes that are greater than us in every way, that we can look up to in every way, and, that, and it seems sometimes that the greatness of Jesus in the minds of many is diminished by his full humanity. Lord, may we have a, a continual growth in our grasp of why it had to be that way, of why you did things exactly the way you did them, that there was a purpose in Jesus becoming a man to save us. And thank you, Lord, for all that means that he really did experience discouragement and hunger and thirst and pain that you, oh Lord, made sure that our high priest, the one that was going to be answering our prayers as we cry out struggling in all of our frailties that he would not be someone that can't understand, but he gets it. He experienced it and that he's gracious and merciful, kind, long-suffering and patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for that truth. Thank you that you're committed to continuing this process of making us more like you and continuing to free us from every bondage, every fear, 
that would try to hold us back from all that you have for us. Thank you, Lord, that you're committed to that process even when we get distracted by other things and we couldn't care about it. When we're, we're perfectly satisfied with little foolish things here on this earth, Lord, thank you that you stay focused, that you have committed to finish the work you began in us. I thank you it's not up to me. You are mighty and powerful, worthy, faithful. I love you. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.